with the title, God's Great Curse Reversals. God's Great Curse Reversals. And um, so let's begin. In Genesis 1.27, God blessed Adam and Eve and uh, said to them, you know, that uh, they were to be fruitful and multiply. But after they sinned, in the original curse of sin, man, who was called Adam, whose name actually means red dirt or something akin to it, is made from dirt, right? Uh, Adam would die, and it's the ground, Adama, actually, that's cursed. And God wants to reverse the curse, amen. So the whole story of God's work in Scripture and uh, the coming of Christ, redemption that comes to us through Jesus and his shed blood on the cross is the story of God reversing the curse. And so God provides hope in Scripture in the form of a word play on the word seed. Everybody say seed. seed. So Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent is contrasted with the seed of the woman. So even though the ground Adama is cursed, yet God says through a seed, he's going to bring deliverance, right? But it's a word play because he's not really talking about a physical seed of a plant planted in the cursed ground. He's talking about a generational seed that's going to bring deliverance, right? So Genesis 3, 14 and 15 says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, important word there, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And if you want an interesting study, just follow the word eat uh, in this uh, dialogue here and, and uh, in this chapter. Uh, the word eat is fascinating. Anyways, you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel, your offspring, your seed. All throughout scripture, the seed of the serpent, as we know, is at war with the seed of the righteous, right? And that's what we see all the way through Scripture, even to the book of Revelation. In Revelation 12, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. The devil's always trying to destroy the righteous generation. That's right. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snapped, snatched up to God and to his throne. So this thematic structure goes all the way through Scripture where we have two seeds at war, two generations at war, and they're at war all the way through. And 
depending on how you read Revelation, it either happened in the past in Revelation 12, at the fall of uh, the devil, you know, or it happened uh, at the time of Jesus when Herod, the devil's seed, so to speak, attempted to kill all the male children, where the devil had the princes of the world known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't realize, they thought they were going, doing the devil a service by killing off the righteous one, right? And yet Jesus rose from the dead. And so we see this all the way through scripture, the two seeds. So in Genesis 3, 14 and 15 though, he says, I will put enmity hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head devil, and you will strike his heel. This is what uh, theologians, if you want the fancy term, call the proto-evangelium, which means the first evangel, the first gospel, all right? So this is the first hint of the gospel that we have in Scripture, where there's a righteous seed who is going to crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent would attack the righteous seeds heal, but of course, obviously, the seed of the righteous would have victory over the devil, right? So this is the first announcement of the gospel. It's going to be a person coming through a woman, a male child who is going to strike the head of the devil, all right? So here we have a real prophecy that's setting up, and thematically, Genesis sets up a lot of these themes as they carry all the way through Scripture. It's a design by the Lord, amen. So the seed of the ground, though it is cursed with thorns and thistles, will be harvested by the hard work of man, and ultimately, the, even the ground, the earth, will be restored to an Edenic state, a state like Eden. He says in Romans, uh, we'll just look at 8.21, that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. So when Romans tells us, Paul's saying, listen, at the final consummation, when the Lord comes back, the seed of the righteous being, uh, having achieved their, their full calling, so to speak, at the same time, the earth will be restored, right? And it'll be glorious. So then we see, as we, we sort of uh, look at Genesis, we follow seeds, that go on, or generational concepts that go on. For example, God blessed the 10th generation, who was Noah. Noah became a source seed of blessing. In Genesis 9, 1, God blessed Noah and his sons, and notice, he gave them the same commission as Adam, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same commission, right? So God's plan didn't really change. Genesis 5.29 says, He named him Noah, saying, This one will bring comfort from our labor and from the painful toil of our hands because of the ground that the Lord has cursed. So this is already looking forward to the day when one day the earth would be restored and it would bring forth fruit without the heavy toil that was part of the curse, right, as a result of this sin of Adam and Eve. God blesses Noah's seed, his generation, his offspring, Genesis 9, 9. Behold, he says, I establish my covenant with you 
and your offspring. The Hebrew word there, Zerah, means seed, right? Your offspring, your generation, your seed. Then in 10 more generations after Noah, Abraham comes on the scene. And Abraham is also promised that his seed, his generations, will be blessed. Genesis 12, 2. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so shall you, you will be a blessing to your offspring. Again, the Hebrew word zerah, seed, I will give this land. There are great reversals that happen in Scripture, and we're going to look at some of them today. I just want to give you some examples about how God reverses curses, right? Amen? God reverses curses, and he often does it through seed. So the first one we've kind of already touched on, the first couple, uh, the seed of the serpent is reversed and defeated by the seed of the woman, right? And then it follows on the seed of Noah, righteous Noah, the seed of Abraham, righteous Abraham by faith, ultimately to Christ because Christ is of Abraham's seed his generation. The curse of the ground is reversed by the blessing of God on the land of promise. Adam, the man of dust, is cursed by death and returns to the ground. But the last Adam, who is Christ, will reverse and conquer death by dying, also being buried, but raised as the Lord of life, and he's called the second man and Lord of heaven. Christ is the seed that falls into the ground and dies and then brings forth many other seeds of righteousness, right? In fact, Jesus said it this way in John 12. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verily, very truly, I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So Christ, as the ultimate seed of righteousness, planted in the ground, dies the death, plants in the ground, is risen to newness of life, and then his successive generations produce the righteous seed. Amen? And the Bible says, Romans, Paul said in 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Right? So the righteous seed of Christ is given authority to live that life, to have that life within itself, to die to ourselves, to rise to newness of life in Christ, and therefore our righteous seed kills the serpent and steps on his head, just like Genesis 3.15 said. Another curse that's reversed is the curse of conflict. In Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. The curse of conflict was settled through Christ's sacrificial blood that brought peace between God and man and man and man. There's two wars going on here essentially, right? Because we are enemies of God when we're outside of Christ. And we also are at war with one another. Where do wars and fightings come except from your own lusts, right? So God wants to fix the vertical problem and the horizontal problem between us in the seed of Christ. 
God fixes the curse of conflict. He reverses this curse. Cain represents the seed of the serpent. And his motivation is false worship. He can't figure out why he's not allowed to approach God in the way that he wants to define it. And God rejects his sacrifice, and the seed of the serpent is rejected, and Cain gets angry. Part of the serpent's war, incidentally, revolves around worship. That's why worship is mentioned in the book of Revelation. But Cain, the seed of the serpent, has false worship that's unaccepted by the Lord. And so he kills Abel. Righteous Abel's blood cries out from the ground, and it's prototypical, it's an example of righteous Christ's blood still speaking and bringing healing and reconciliation between man and God and man and man. Amen? So Christ reverses the curse that comes as a result of the conflict that arises out of our sinful nature. Amen? Then next we see the curse of impatience and unbelief. And I love this story in Numbers 21. In verse 9, the people are traveling through the wilderness and the people became impatient on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. And then they contradict themselves and say, and we loathe this worthless food. <laughs> In other words, there's no food that we're liking here, all right? Boy. Then the Lord, as a result, sent fiery serpents. Okay? Fiery serpents, the word serpent, nahash, among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and they said, we've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. So we see the serpent's seed attacks whenever God's people begin to grumble about God's provision, right? They grumble, and so that opens the door for the attack of the devil. The serpent's seed is always lurking, by the way, right? He's waiting as, as we learn about Jesus when the devil left him for a more opportune time in his temptation, right? He runs about seeking whom he may devour. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. Bronze in the Bible, if you remember from when we talked about the tabernacle, bronze is, bronze is typical of judgment upon sin. That's why the uh, brass, the brazen bronze altar was made out of it. They, the sacrifice is laid on the bronze altar. Bronze is typical of judgment on sin, right? So anyway, so Moses makes the bronze serpent, sets it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
Jesus appropriates this imagery in John chapter 3 and says, and it says, and he is saying himself, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, what are we saying here? Every time the devil has a means to try to achieve what he wants to do, God very often uses that same thing against the enemy. He turns it against the enemy. Amen? And so we see, well, you know, the curse is on, on the ground, and, the, and you're going to have to work hard for the seed. But God says, but there's a better seed coming. Amen? And there's a better gardener on his way, so to speak. And he's going to fix everything. When the devil comes in as a result of all of this, this infighting and complaining, he's, the Lord allows the serpents to come. Why? Because God is cruel? No, because he wants to give us a picture of how important obedience is, right? And lack of complaint. Of course, there's that lesson. It's fairly obvious. But he wants to give us a picture showing I'm going to, what the devil meant for good, I'm going to turn it, or for evil, I'm going to turn it around for good, right? He uses the very same weapons against the devil. He pictures it, and ultimately, it's a prophecy of Christ, and Christ says it that way. He says, I'm going to be lifted up, and whoever looks to me, they will live. That's beautiful. The attack of poisonous serpents as a result of ungodly complaining, rebellion, and unbelief is reversed and healed by Moses' intercession. This is an important aspect. If you're attacked by the devil, you need to start seeking God. Amen? And if you see other people who are attacking you or that are, you know, complaining about the Lord, we need to pray. Moses interceded, oh Lord, help us. What are we going to do? And God gave him instruction. And he also commanded them to look at the bronze serpent lifted high. Just as Jesus healed mankind by being lifted up in the wilderness, Jesus himself frames the deliverance from the attack of the serpents as a result of sin with the image of himself bearing the curse of the serpent's bite, right? He bears the curse of the serpent's bite, lifted up on the cross, and he bears the poison of our sins upon that cross. And we are healed by looking to him. Amen? God reverses the curse. Amen. The next curse I want to look at is the curse of Balaam, or Balaam, on Israel. It's reversed by the Lord. In Numbers chapters 22 to 24, Balaam is presented as an anti-Abraham figure. He has certain similarities. He comes from Mesopotamia. Once he's summoned, he arises at dawn, takes two servants, and sets out for a foreign land of promise. He goes to a place of sacrifice three times. Abraham goes to three primary places in Scripture. He journeys and sacrifices in Shechem, Bethel, and on Moriah, and also he purchases land in Hebron. The same pattern is also followed by Jacob, by the way. But Balaam is essentially an anti-Abraham, where, there's a, where, where God brings along somebody obedient to the Lord and willing to do what the Lord says, 
when God brings along his righteous seed on the scene, you can almost count on there's going to be an anti-Christ, an anti-Abraham, an anti-righteous, an anti-holiness. Balaam practices divination. You know what the word divination is? Nahash, serpentry, all right? He, he practices serpentry. It's the same word, it's from the same word as serpent, but he cannot, as we've heard in recent days, he cannot curse Israel. The Lord reverses the curse, and instead Balaam has to bless Israel. He turns it around, amen. And then God also reverses the curse of zeal for ungodliness. This is another way. In Numbers 25, just kind of following on in the narrative, Israel's zeal for ungodliness in, is resulting in Yahweh's jealousy or zeal that is bringing judgment on God's people. Balaam figures out he cannot curse Israel, so he advises Balak to, well, you know, the, one of the ways that you could get, uh, get them is by causing them to worship other gods, and then God himself will curse them because they're worshiping other gods. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, it's simple. If you'll just get the children of Israel to see those pretty girls over there, and they'll start messing around with those pretty girls, and pretty soon they'll have a meal with them, and then, oh, you know, it's time to go up to the temple and worship Baal of Peor. Do you mind? Come on along. And, of course, they follow along, and what happens is, They've disobeyed the Lord, and they end up being cursed, right? They end up underneath the curse of the Lord or God's jealousy, his zeal for his own people and his own holiness. But that curse is stopped by the jealousy or the zeal of a guy named Phinehas. You know his name actually means the black man? This black man stops the curse of God on his people as a result of their sin. He defeats the curse of ungodliness, and incidentally, his name, Pinahash, if you kind of want to take poetic license, can be also meaning the word of the serpent. This black man takes the word of the serpent and reverses the curse. There's some stuff to think about there. And he takes the javelin, right? So what happens is Balaam could not curse Israel, so he advised Balak to entice the children of Israel into worshiping the Baal of Peor through sexual immorality with the Moabite women. Phinehas, though, ultimately kills Balaam who Balak had hired to curse Israel. And instead of piercing others through, because one of the Israelite men actually took a Moabite woman back to camp with him, and they're they're fornicating right in in the sight of everybody. And Phinehas, with the jealousy of the Lord, comes and sticks the javelin right through him, and, and God stops the judgment that's coming. And he says, Phinehas... His, his zeal, his ze- jealousy for my name, for my glory, for my will to be done has stopped the curse. Jesus also has zeal for his house, the house of God. Amen? 
We hear that in the Gospel of John. And instead of piercing others, he takes the curse of sin upon himself. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He bore our sin. He defeated ungodliness. Swaged God's jealous wrath for righteousness and brought in the covenant of peace. Jesus reverses the curse of sin and turns the curse of the serpent's ungodliness against him. Amen. Let's read the scripture here, Numbers 25. When Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to their sacrifices to their gods. You know, one thing leads to another. I love what Pastor Ron says, if you get on the road, you know where it's going, right? And you get on certain roads, it's gonna take you where you don't wanna go, keep you there longer than you wanted to stay and cost you more than you're willing to pay in the various, the famous phrases there. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And Pastor Ron is a great message on the, the doctrine of Balaam, the teaching of, of Balaam, and the other two points I forget just offhand, but they're great. The error, the way, and the doctrine of Balaam. There, thank you. And the Lord's anger turned against them. So the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people and kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. This was bad, right? When you get God telling righteous guys to go kill a bunch of guys because they worship a false god, this is bad. God takes this stuff seriously. Amen? We need, and it's about worship, isn't it? Again, it's about worship. So think about, in what way am I demonstrating covenant worship Communion is so important. It's an expression of covenant. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting, while Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, glory, saw it, he got up from among the assembly, took a javelin in his hand, and went after the Israelite man into the tent and thrust through the Israelite man and into the woman's abdomen. So the plague was stopped from the Israelites. Then those who died in the plague were 24,000. Golly. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, this black man, fighting the word of the serpent. <laughs> the son of Aaron the priest has turned my anger away from the Israelites when he manifested such zeal for my house among them so that I did not consume the Israelites in my zeal. Therefore announce to Phinehas, I'm going to give to him my covenant of peace. There's an ultimate Phinehas, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, who came consumed with zeal for the house of God, who was angered because the people turned his house into a place of merchandise and didn't really care about the attitudes 
of the people towards the Lord and their relationship. And Jesus, instead of killing people, took the piercing upon himself. He took the javelin of the Lord and therefore pierced through the seed of the serpent's word and put a stop to the plague that was ailing the children of Israel. The curse of sin, lastly, is another curse, the curse of zeal for false religion. And this could be linked to the other as well. The curse of zeal for false religion. And I was was thinking about Saul, Paul the Apostle, who was once a persecutor and killer of Christians. He's gloriously saved and changed. In Acts 9, when he surrenders to his new Lord, scales fall from his blinded eyes. It brings to mind how Goliath was wearing armor that was like scales. Dagon, the Philistine god, was a fish god who had scales. Dagon falls over in the presence of the ark and his head falls off. You'll crush the serpent's head. What does David do to Goliath? He cuts off Goliath's head. Jesus touches Saul, speaks to him, claims him for his own, and scales fall from Saul's blinded eyes. And later, the serpent on Malta, his bite does not affect Saul. It's a pretty good image right there. Where sin abounds, grace much more. In Scripture, after Israel sins, the Lord comes in grace, healing, blessing, forgiving, providing a way of deliverance, and ultimately, he reverses the curses through the righteous seed. And may we be used of God to reverse the curse of sin in our generation as well. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for the time.